0: The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, significant for me to be here because I really do believe in what this event stands for, and I believe in its existence, and I believe that it should exist, and I believe that the reason it exists is infinitely important. And uh, it's no accident, I suppose, in God's providence that both... Don Carson's text this morning and mine tonight hits upon texts that are so relevant for the very existence of this of this conference. So I appreciate very much being asked and I'm happy to serve for these couple of evenings. It's a high privilege to be a part of anything that comes into being for such high and noble purposes. I would like to ask the Lord one more time uh, in particular for help. So would you let me pray with you for just a moment. Father, I want to dedicate this message to a one man in particular who's here, and I am deeply thankful that he came such a far way and, and will hear it with a unique ear. You know him, and, and you know me, and I pray that I would be of service. His faith. And then there are others, Lord, hundreds that I don't know who have brought their sufferings with them in their heart and mind and others who in the next weeks to follow will be simply stunned at the jaws of the lion into which they are about to walk. And if I could be of any assistance in strengthening their faith and preparing them for that trial, it would make me very glad. And so, Father, you know in your great wisdom what is about to come to pass and what has been in this room already. And so, please, like you took the loaves and fishes and fed 5,000 beyond that little boy's expectation, would you take these words and multiply them for faith's food beyond anything I have dreamed And my dreams have been large for this event, and I pray that you will surprise us all with the effect across Great Britain of this conference and what comes of it. Glorify your Son. In his name I pray, amen. The theme is treasuring Christ together, or treasuring Christ and the call to suffer. So I want to linger over the meaning of the theme for just a few minutes and focus on the term treasuring Christ. I think there's a danger everywhere that the faith is held, but probably particularly in America, that Christ become a means and not the end of salvation. And there are good reasons for thinking of him as means and there are bad reasons he is the means of our salvation. If he had not died, we would not have life. If he had not died, we would go to hell. If he had not died, nothing good ultimately would come to us. We would be judged. And so it's not wrong to think of Christ as the means of salvation. But there are forms of thinking about that that are offensive and ungodly. We call them the prosperity gospel. My land specialize in exporting that heresy all over the world, especially to third world countries, to my great grief and dismay. And then there are less offensive forms of it in ordinary evangelical churches where we never quite get to the end of the gospel We say He died to forgive sins and He died to get us out of hell and He died to remove our guilt and He died to give us eternal life and He died to give us justification and that's not the end. That's not the point. All of those things are getting us somewhere. They're getting us to God. 1 Peter 3.18, you know, He bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might bring us to God. And until we get to Christ as the end and God as the end of the gospel, then we haven't seen the reason ultimately for why he died. Now, when you use the word treasure as a verb and you make Christ the object of, of the verb. You are doing something tremendously helpful in our day to combat that error, which is why I love this title, topic. I mean, we have a a whole mission at our church called Treasuring Christ Together, and I drive it with all my might. And I I want to commend to pastors here to go home and to teach your people that treasure is a verb and that the highest object of it is Christ and if you could just get people to think that way feel that way it would change everything in their lives now it is extremely biblical to think that way about the term treasuring Christ my favorite little parable is Matthew 13:44 the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found A what? Hidden in a field. A treasure hidden in a field. And he covered it over. And in his joy, apokaros, in Greek, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. That's the end of the parable. And the point is that when Christ the King came into the world and offered himself for our fellowship and paid the debt that we might have him and not just heaven and out of hell. He became to us a treasure beyond all values because it says he sold everything. And he did it gladly. There was no sacrifice when you sold your wedding ring and your grandfather's clock and all of your books yes, all of your books and your computer and your house and all of your clothes except what you've got on your back and you called it gain because that's how valuable he is. So this idea of treasuring him is biblical through and through. Matthew 10 37. Whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me, not worthy of me. You better treasure Jesus more than all your family, all your health, and all your life. Or you are not worthy of him. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Psalm 63.3. That's why Paul could say, "It it is my eager expectation and hope that now, as always, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Tell me. Gain. How, how can that be? Because you're leaving behind family. The dream of retirement's not going to happen. A single person, 21 years old, dying of leukemia, not going to ever get married. And saying as they breathe their last game. How can that be? Very simple phrase. They treasure Christ above everything. Do you? We, see, in my brand of evangelicalism that I grew up in, that phrase was never used. It was always receiving him as Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior. And that's absolutely right. But if you don't ever get around to moving through what did he save us for and what does he use his lordly power and wisdom and love to be for me, then you, we just become utilitarian. The cross is useful. Jesus is useful. What a dishonor to the Lord if he's just useful to get you out of hell. Just useful to get you to pearly gates and streets of gold and reunion with mom and no more sickness. If he's just useful. He's not useful. He's king. He's glorious. He's satisfying. He's everything to us. That's the significance of this title. John seventeen twenty four. Jesus prayed for you. Remember this prayer. And the apex of his prayer was, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Period. That's it. That's the end. There's nothing higher than to be folded in to a transforming sight of the infinitely valuable Christ. Oh, how thin is our affection for him. There are even evangelicals who are fearful of this idea of treasuring him, which boggles my mind, and I have no categories for comprehending that kind of Misunderstanding of the Bible, the Gospel is explained in many ways, and one of my favorite verses that has so gripped me in say the last ten years is second Corinthians chapter four, verse four: The God of this age that 's the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Of the glory of Christ. There it is. What's the, what is the gospel? It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. Whatever else he did, he did it to enable us to spend eternity beholding with ever-increasing joy his glory. That's why he died. If we don't get to that, we don't get to the end of the gospel So thank you for whoever chose the title. (laughs) I love it. And it, it enables us to get so many things right and make the Christian life as impossible as it really is. Decisions are easy. Affections are impossible and the christian life is impossible and you should feel desperate if you're sitting there feeling but i don't treasure him that way join the club every day i pray about my failing emotions every day i pray about how my computer attracts me and my wife attracts me and my daughter attracts me and and preaching attracts me and christ is less attractive. That's my main battle in life. That's the meaning of sanctification, is to fight at that level, not the decision level, the duty level, the action level. All that comes when out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. When out of the abundance of the heart the hands move. The battle is fought at the treasuring level of life. So, thank you. It is a great title. I hope I may be worthy of it. So, pastors, go home. If you don't want to use this one, find a better one. Turn the word treasure from a noun into a verb and preach and live so that your people experience Christ as the direct object of of the verb above money and sex and career and family and health and life. That's my job as a pastor. The second half of the title is The Call to Suffer. The reason that is so relevant to put the two together is because the Bible makes clear that the experience of life, the place in life that causes the value of Christ to be seen most clearly is when he is treasured in suffering. When he is treasured in spite of all those statistics, maybe even because of them. When Everything goes wrong in your life as the world regards wrong. And you say, Christ is all. Last Sunday, I was turning a 20-week series to an end. It was on the new birth, and uh, I was illustrating how God might have to do it in Minneapolis to turn the conviction that we should declare the good news to our unbelieving friends into a passion. What what might he do? And I I said, well, he might have to do it the way he did it in Acts 8. Remember that? The church in Jerusalem was told in chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and they weren't. They weren't. And so God raised up Stephen, whose face shone like an angel, and whose speech was irresistible. And the only thing they could do with him was to kill him. And they did. That's verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, a great persecution spread through Jerusalem. And all the Christians, all the saints, were driven out of Jerusalem. Now, there were at least 10,000 from what we've seen so far in Acts. The apostles left 10,000 people turned into refugees. They were driven out to Samaria and Judea. You can't help but make the connection. If you won't be my witnesses voluntarily, I will get you going with the persecution. Now, here's the amazing thing from verse 4 of Acts 8. Only you have to get inside their skin. They've been driven away from their homes... They had to leave behind possessions. They're looking for friends somewhere to take them in. And it says, they went everywhere telling the good news of the word. That's very strange. You've just lost your city. You've just been driven out. Your main teacher has been killed and your life is in jeopardy, and everywhere you go, you say, there's good news, there's good news, there's good news, and people look at you, but you just got driven out of your home. What makes that understandable? Answer, treasuring Christ above all things. Above home, above security, above comfort, above ease, And when it happens, in those moments, he shines more brightly. If you're wealthy and healthy and your family's all together and you don't have a problem in the world and you tell somebody you value Jesus above your family, above your health, and above everything, they probably won't believe you. But if you lose your wife, if you lose your home, and you lose your health... And they look at you in your contentment and say, what are you hoping in? And you say, Christ is more valuable to me than all those things, and he has never left me. He loves me. He's going to care for me all the way home. They just might believe you. So you see the connection between the two? Treasuring Christ is a way of showing how valuable he is because you've made him so valuable. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see he's valuable, and then you put it beside the call to suffer, and you see the call to suffer is the very place in life where that testimony will have most credibility and will have uh, most power in shining Christ forth. So much for the title. Would you open your Bibles now again to Romans 8? The call to suffer is in verses 16 and 17. Verse 17 in particular, but we'll start at 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. If we suffer with Him, that's a condition, in order that, and that's the result of the condition, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Very shocking way of saying you must suffer. It, it says, if you hear the call to suffer and reject it, you will not go to heaven. You will not be glorified. Read it again, unless you think I'm making that up. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Whoever would be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me that's what Paul's quoting whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted 2 Timothy 3:12 if you are left without discipline you are not a legitimate child Hebrews 12:8 Finishing the first missionary journey, Paul comes back doing discipleship in the churches and the basic first inescapable thing he says in Acts 14:22 is through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. A disciple is not above his teacher. If they call the teacher, the master of the house, Beelzebul, what will they call the members of his household? Now, that condition that we must meet in order to be glorified is not intended in Romans 8 to make you tonight feel insecure in your standing with God, or the certainty of your glorification to be called into question. And we know that because of what happens some verses later in verse 30, where he says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And nobody falls out of that golden chain. If you're justified tonight, you will be glorified. There is no doubt about it. So we have two premises. What's the conclusion? Premise one, all the justified will be glorified. Premise two, only those who suffer will be glorified. Conclusion, God Almighty... We'll see that you come through your suffering like gold if you are justified. That's the conclusion. And you will come through like gold. Eternal security is not mechanical. It is absolutely certain. But it is certain rooted in the sovereignty of the faithfulness of God. Not because you pray a prayer when you're six or walked an aisle, or signed a card, or anything in the past. It's because tomorrow morning, God will see to it that you wake up willing to suffer. That's the way you endure to the end. He's God. He keeps his own. Nobody plucks them out of his hand. If they must suffer to get glory, he will see to it that they suffer. And if they must come through like gold, he'll get them through like gold. It's all over the New Testament that God keeps his own and brings them through whatever he assigns to them. And this text says you're assigned to suffer. There is no escaping it. If your goal in life is to escape it, your goal in life is hell. I don't encourage you to run away from suffering. Now, the point of verses 18 to 25 are simple. It's worth it. It's worth it. That's the point of verses 18 to 25. I'll show you that in a few minutes. I I, I don't consider the sufferings of this present time Worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. It's worth it. That's the point of these verses. But before we go there and unpack them a little bit, we must take a brief look at the argument of verses 1 to 17. i try to keep this short because I want it to be about what it's announced to be about. Though this is the greatest chapter in the Bible and it is difficult to squeeze it into these few minutes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus by being united to Him through faith. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. So now the the first statement is, you are now free from all divine condemnation forever. He spent seven chapters and Terry Virgo making that point. Verse 2, I believe, is an evidential support for it. Evidence, evidence, not ground. Two ways you can argue for something. So much hangs on this today. In theology, I would love to go into this. But the evidence that you are experiencing now and never will experience condemnation is that the Holy Spirit is in you and He's liberating you from the bondage to sin. That's the evidence that you're there. Then comes the ground. What the law could not... This is verse 3. What the law could not do... Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What did He do? So that there'd be no condemnation, and so that the Holy Spirit could be unleashed into us to warrant that glorious reality. God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The reason He uses the word likeness is because He was in real flesh, but not sinful. He looked like everybody else, and everybody else is a sinner, and so he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, really flesh, but like sin, not sin. Looked like everybody else. Got hungry, but his hunger wasn't owing anybody's sin. Now, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and here's the main statement. He condemned sin in the flesh. And I do suggest if you can't see the connection between that word and verse 1, you get another version. I really do. If you can't see the word condemn in verse 3 and condemnation in verse 1, you're going to miss everything in these three verses. Oops, my little thing just fell off. It's all right. I'll put it in my pocket. I bounce around too much. Sorry. Here we go. He condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. Whose sin? His? He had none. Mine? Yours? That's why this conference exists. That is, as Don Carson showed us this morning, the heart of the gospel and precious beyond words, and that it is being rejected today is appalling beyond words in your country and mine. A condemnation had to happen. God is just. A condemnation had to happen. It's either me being condemned or Christ being condemned. Now, if somebody says back to me, it doesn't say Christ was condemned, it says sin was condemned, I think I'd call them up on the stage here and say, okay, are you ready? I'm going to hit you in the face in just a minute. It's not you I'm hitting, it's just your bad attitude. I probably shouldn't use humor to get at this, but I'm really angry about it. And I might use bad language if I don't use humor. Um, By His Stripes. We have been healed. It was the will of the Lord to bruise Him. Isaiah fifty three, ten. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is every one, not every sin, that hangs on a tree. God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him I might become the righteousness of God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him smitten, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he struck him and killed him. I know a good friend who does prison ministry. And he goes in where these guys have all kinds of experiences with their dads. And one Monday, Thursday, a Good Friday, gathering in the prison, he asked the prisoners who killed Jesus. They said, Pilate killed him. Soldiers killed him. Jews killed him. And one wise guy said, We killed him. And my friend John said, His father killed him. They were stunned. Nobody ever said that before. It's considered today in our land, our lands appalling to teach this or to sing it. Bore the wrath. I hope it's not appalling here. I wouldn't have come had I thought it was appalling here. It's my life. It's my hope. If I have questions about it, Questions I will have. So, verse 3 is the ground of the chapter. And everything else in verses 1 to 17 unleashes from it. And what we have is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is manifesting Himself uh, so that there's no condemnation. And we belong to Christ, verse 9. And He will give us life, verse 11-11. And we are sons of God, verse 14, and now we come to what I'm supposed to spend my time talking about. We have about 10 minutes left. <laughs> Verses 18 to 25. Here's the way I'm going to sum it up. Uh, it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, it's, it. More than that is being said. It's, that's just the way he starts. I don't consider the sufferings of this time Worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us it 's worth it now how does he how does he help us feel this because it 's hard to feel it when you 're in it. How does he help us and the way he helps us is very surprising, not all of it is surprising, some of it is exactly the way I would expect and we 'll talk more about that tomorrow, Lord willing, but tonight the the focus is on the I just, <laughs> I'm surprised, Paul, at the way you go about helping me feel it's worth it. Because what he does is three things. He steps back from my pain. You've got to be careful when and how you do this pastorally, which is why being a pastor is such a wonderful thing. You, you don't just stand beside beds. You stand in a pulpit, and, and they have a kind of rhythm to them. And the pulpit can do this, and and the bed can do, do other things. He says, all human suffering, all suffering is universal. Secondly, he says it's historical. And third, he says it's judicial. And I just look at it and say, that's big. That's heavy. That's global. Does that help? I don't think he would have written it if he didn't think it would help. So let me unpack those three quickly, if I can, and show you that and trust God to make them helpful. Number one, suffering, he says, is universal. And when I say universal, I don't mean God's included because he made the universe. I mean everything but God and unfallen angels, the universe as we know it all the galaxies and planet Earth. Verse 22. There are three verses that say this. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So there's the term whole creation. Groaning. Suffering. Verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there you have creation enslaved to corruption. So all of creation is enslaved to corruption. Third verse, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So there you have the third reference to creation. The creation is now subject to futility. So, whole creation groans and suffers. The whole creation is in slavery to corruption. And the whole creation is subjected to futility. So, the first observation he makes is, Your suffering should never be thought of merely in private terms. It's part of something absolutely universal. And I think he expects that to be helpful. You need to ponder why that might be helpful. It isn't just about me. It isn't about yesterday's sin, necessarily. It isn't maybe about a lifetime of sinning. Something else is going on here. Something global, something universal has brought this horrible reality to pass. Second observation now that he makes. It's historical. It it spans the sweep of history. It has a beginning in history, and it will have an end at the coming of the Lord. Verse 18, you see that reference to the present time? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that's history as we know it, this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. That, that's an event. Creation didn't come into being this way. What we see in those statistics that were up there, it didn't come into being that way. It happened at a point. It was subjected to Futility. That's history. It's something that happened now. It will have an end. The freedom of the glory of the children of God is going to end someday. Thirdly, and lastly, it's judicial. This is the one that's most important, most controversial, and I think the most helpful of those three. Universal, historical, and judicial. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. Let's go back to verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, who did that? Somebody brought this about. Somebody... Took the universe and disordered it. It's in disorder. It's in tremendously painful disorder. Your lives are filled with painful disorder disordered relationships, disordered health, disordered, disordered workplaces, disordered things that break and nothing seems to work. Life is disordered. The universe is disordered. Tsunamis are a disorder. Hurricanes are a disorder. Cyclones, disorder. Floods, famines, diseases, disorder. Somebody did that. Who was it? Answer, God did that. And the reason we know that verse 20 is referring to God is because of the words in hope at the end of the verse. Look at it. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There are only two other candidates as far as I can see, Adam and and, and the devil. Adam and the devil. So Adam sinned, maybe Eve could be included, let's just lump them together. Adam and Eve and the devil. Did Adam and Eve sin with a view to the liberty of the children of God in the hope of a future great new heavens and a new earth. They didn't have a clue. They did not do it for that purpose. They're not the ones, they're not the subject of verse 20. How about the devil? He tempted them and brought that about in that way. Was that his design to do this in hope that the whole creation would be set free from his bondage to decay? That's the hope that somebody did it in. There's only one person who did it that way. God did it that way. When Adam and Eve sin in that day, you shall die. And with you, the whole universe is coming down. Judicial means God judged the universe because of sin. God judged the universe with its misery because of sin. This is not, as Don Carson was coming at from a different angle this morning, this is not moral consequentialism. There's so much of that in evangelicalism today. Hell is explained that way. The atonement is explained that way. Your suffering is explained that way. God is written off. We're deists. We're all becoming deists because... Without Romans 8, 18 to 25, deeply gripping your soul, your first reaction when you meet suffering is to distance God from it. It's everywhere. First reaction of our line of defense of poor God who needs defending is that we're going to distance him from this. Huh. It's all over the radios. It's all over the books. It's all over the pulpits. First Line of response to suffering is God's not doing it. That's really sad. Deism never comforted a human soul in a thousand years in the midst of pain. God, the great clockmaker, winds up the world, moves to another side of the universe and watches it tick and maybe even feels bad about how Crummy, it's going. That is not comforting. I want to be a comfort, biblically. I've been a pastor for 28 years. I've buried a lot of people. I've walked through many divorces. I've wept over so many wayward children, including my own. I am not a foreigner to people's pain. And I want to be a strong comfort a biblical comfort a lasting comfort a deep comfort i want to get it right i don't want to sell something that's easy that fits the mindset of the present world and has a thin comforting to it the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but of its but because of him who subjected it in hope now here are a few closing implications of this. And, and they're amazing. They're amazing. I hope, I hope I can help you see it because it'll change the way you read and listen to those statistics that were on the DVD. Here's one of the implications. The meaning of all misery in the universe and in the world is that sin is Horrific. The meaning of all misery is that sin is horrific. Say it another way. All natural evil, natural evil, floods, disease. All natural evil is a statement about the horror of moral evil. You see where I'm getting that, don't you? God looked upon sin and he said, here's my response to that. And he subjects the entire creation to this. Until you see the moral outrage of sin in proper proportions, and until you see the magnificence of the holiness of God in proper proportions, that will seem to you like an overreaction. Surely the world listening to me tonight would say, that's ridiculous. He saw one sin and he did that? The implication is this. The reason God subjects the world to futility is to teach you about your heart. You don't know your heart. Emotionally, you're not even close to feeling the horrors of the way you treat your wife, daughter, husband. The weakness in Worship and witness. Not even close to the moral outrage of falling short of the glory of God. Either, according to Romans 8, 18 to 25, either this world's misery, and it is horrible beyond anything you can imagine. If you see a soldier tripping over his own entrails... and then falling down and crying, Mama, Mama, and then dying, choking on his own blood. You just see a tiny fraction of the horrible miseries of the world. And without this text, there's no biblical way forward here. This text says, God subjected the world to futility In response to moral evil and disobedience and God belittling indifference of humans who think they know better what's right than what God's Word says. And he says, I'll show you what that is like. It's like that. And the reason he has to use bodies to show us is because we're not sensitive to spirit. Nobody wakes up feeling that God has done an outrage by sending his son to die for them because it would be unjust of God to do that. We all feel like we deserve redemption and we deserve better than we get. And God has painted a world for us that says, you want to know how ugly and outrageous and unthinkably hideous your sin is. Look at AIDS. Look at cancer. Look at certain tumors on people's faces in the world that never leave their apartment. That's what it is. I need to stop a, a, a thought just came to my mind. Maybe I'll share it and try to draw it up with that. Um, I live in a Phillips neighborhood where a lot of, you know, ordinary and poor folks live because our church is downtown and I like to walk to church. So I, I live where the church is. And there's a man in our neighborhood who I don't know yet. I began to see him not long ago on a bicycle. And his face is, is the most hideous face I've ever seen in my life. I've only seen him like from 30 feet away. Where's a hat? wears dark glasses? And I want to meet him so bad. I'm going to corner him one of these times. Because I got the best news in the world for him. <laughs> I'm just going to be straight up. I'm say, man, this, how, you ca- how you didn't commit suicide, that's amazing. I, wa- I want to know you. And I want to tell you the best news in all the world. You're going to die someday with that face. And if you would trust Jesus... He's going to give you another one. And he's going to enable you to enjoy him forever. And that's why Jesus Christ came into the world. I've got really good news for that man. I've got good news for everybody who will have Jesus who suffered for us. So, in conclusion, verse 23, we'll pick it up there tomorrow night, says... Not only has all the creation suffering, but even we, we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly. In fact, Paul seems so eager to say to this crowd Christians, don't conclude from no condemnation, no suffering. Don't make that mistake. That's what this whole chapter seems to me to say. No condemnation. Oh, Christian, don't draw the conclusion prosperity, don't draw the conclusion ease. There's a Calvary road to be walked. Some of it will be physical suffering. Some of it will be persecution. Walk it with me and you come out into the liberty of the children of God and a new heavens and a new earth forever. It will be so long and so great that this slight momentary affliction of 80 years with great pain will seem to you as nothing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I preach beyond myself because the word is beyond me. I long to walk in a kind of treasuring of Christ so that when my body gives way, I would be able to say the steadfast love of the Lord Is better than life. He is my great and faithful shepherd. He will see me through this valley of the shadow of death. I will therefore fear no evil because I can smell the green pastures and I can smell the still waters. And though this may last for a season, joy will come with the morning and I will be his forever. I pray for these friends here and for my own soul that this is the way we would walk and this is the way we would commend our Savior.